0: Chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. I don't know if all GPS soft, you know, on your phone app, all the GPS things do this. I don't really know, but I know most of them do. Sometimes if you, if you use your thumb and you try to figure out where I'm going on this road and then you turn right with your thumb and turn left, before you know it, you're off the screen. And they have a button down there that says Recenter the screen. You know, Google does this. Recenter the screen, it puts you back to where you were. Well, when a pastor, pastor has, a, usually pastors have three or four passages that every now and again you revisit. Why? Because it recenters. It recenters the screen. They're passages that are so particularly important, so worthy of further review. You have to revisit them. They're of paramount importance in the life of one who's following Christ. And I would say that Philippians chapter 2, especially the first 11 verses, are certainly that passage. Your attitude should just be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing says he took on the very nature of a servant. King James says, bondservant. servant. It is a passage about selflessness, humility, servanthood, that as we go through our lives together is in stark, even starker contrast to the pattern of this world. And for that reason, because it is in such stark dichotomy to the pattern of this world, we must revisit it to recenter ourselves. And today I'm going to present a part of that passage to you. I I recommend you read it before day's end, maybe throughout the week. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. I wanna share with you uh, this passage in in the context of how it pertains to a church, and specifically a church that is global mission-minded, local, regional, and global mission-minded. As I look back over 25 years of ministry, my my first years in ministry were highly and intensely peppered and flavored with global missions. I ultimately became a missions director in a church of 7,000 people, and, and I was intimately acquainted with what missionaries did, didn't do, what they went through, the struggles they had, the fruit they were bearing, the rest they needed. But more than that, I was even very much aware of how missions affects a church. Most people are unaware of this. They don't have the vantage point to see it. But missions, a, a church that's mission-minded, globally mission-minded, has things that churches, has opportunities that churches that are not globally mission-minded don't have. Some do missions out of obligation. Others do missions out of a passionate, compassionate heart. This is different. So my indoctrination into missions work, this is back in the day when the model was pretty much send an American off on the mission field. That's not the case now, but nonetheless, there's lessons to learn in that context. So I would frequent Jamaica. I would go to the Blue Mountains of Jamaica nine times, maybe eight, nine, ten times, and I would teach and prepare and almost provide a sifting process for Americans who thought they were called to go to the global mission field. So they would spend six months in this school and I would offer them one component of teaching, and. My job was really to, to ascertain whether I thought, in, in, in harmony with everyone else there, whether they were prepared to go to the mission field. We didn't want to send somebody to mission field and then send them back. I remember one girl, I knew she was in trouble when she really, really had a deep, deep, deep hunger and, and longing for pizza. <laughs> that, man, she wanted a pizza so bad. And then I knew when she found out that the big water tank that provided our cleaning water and our drinking water had a dead cat in the top of it. I knew she was out. <laughs> I thought, there's no way. If she's almost leaving over a Pizza, that dead cat is really gonna be a problem for her. <laughs> missions, it's, it's, it's something that eventually has to get into your blood. So how deep is your interest in missions? I guess that's one question I would ask. And, Is your life on mission enough so that your life is actually affected by your mission? Your your life is directed by the mission that God gave you to reach people with hope. We're moving a few weeks away from a written update on every missions endeavor we have in this church, and I think you'll find it interesting. But let's continue to build a necessary component in life and in missions, that none of us can do without. We can ill afford to do without this one thing. There are waves of influence in the world today. Constant waves crashing up against us that say be self-sufficient, be ambitious, be ambitious for self, do whatever it takes, whenever it takes to get ahead and prosper. There's a whole culture, a cacophony, a a symphony of waves that tell you to go out there and get your part. And these waves also tell you that your Christianity can be nationalized. Now, what am I talking about? That you can understand Christianity in the context of living in America. You can't. Your Christianity cannot be defined solely by your experience in this country or this country's reputation around the world. You'll stifle God's intended sensitivity for you to minister to people around the world. You can ill afford to let politics and governments become enemies and cost us an infiltration of the gospel into those geographical areas. There are waves of influence coming at you from so many different places that tell us who the bad guys are, who the good guys are. But in God's eyes, there's no Jew or Greek. In God's eyes, every nation needs the gospel. In fact, The Great Commission says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That is not the nations you think it is. It is not national boundaries with with checkpoints and borders. It's people groups. Within a nation, there might be multiple people groups. That's who God's calling us to. He's not calling us to a nationalized geographical border recognized by the United Nations with its own constitution and its own flag. He's calling us to every tribe, every tongue, and every people group across the land, regardless of border, regardless of citizenship. A church that will passionately seek to to bring, go out in all the world and preach the gospel and bring hope to all peoples at all times as best they can, is a church that will never be without. People think that if you hire the right pastor and go in, this so-and-so can turn the finances around. Wrong. It's all about what the church gives has everything to do with what the church has. Being one, I've started... $60 $60 million building campaigns on the, on the brink of a recession. I know what I'm talking about. Funding, provision, resources are available to those, regardless of the context, the economy, the government, anything, the stock market are available to those who are mission-minded. Because those who are mission-minded are dead centered on the heart of God. We, I remember in a choir one time, this was cute. I hope you think so. The choir director was telling the choir, I think it was here, all right, we've got this thing coming up, and we all need to be on the same page with what we're going to wear. So I don't want anyone wearing, he says, don't wear anything sleeveless. We don't want to see each other's armpits. And some woman said, "Yes, but I have the right to bear arms." (laughs) Whatever. So there, there, there's an appropriate time to have rights. The Bill of Rights. Bill of Rights provides us with, (laughs) affords us incredible freedoms of religion, speech, press. Assembly, petition, trial, speedy trial, fair trial, freedom from excessive bail. We have incredible rights. But when you go into the Christian realm, in the kingdom of God, sometimes we have to come to the understanding that there are many people around the world, us included, who really have no rights. Jesus demonstrated that for us. And I'm going to show you here in a minute. It goes like this. Therefore, Philippians chapter two, if anyone has any encouragement from being united with Christ, anybody encouraged by the union with Christ in you? If any comfort from his love, there you go, that's me. I feel great comfort knowing when I make the most incredible blunders, the biggest mistakes, when I commit sin itself, I still have a comfort. Do you not in this relationship I have with him. He hasn't left me. He, has, he may be disappointed, but he's not, nothing's plucking me from his hand. He's still there. He's, he's faithful. I'm encouraged by that. I'm comforted by that. And if any common sharing in the spirit, oh, isn't that wonderful when you can talk with somebody and you can share and, and you're of the same mind, the same heart, the same spirit. There's a, there's a togetherness there. There's a union there. If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete, he says, by being like minded, having the same love, be one in spirit, and of one mind. I guess today in the world, if there's a distinctive about a follower of Christ who's not really following him, it's the lack of humility. If there's a distinctive about the follower of Christ that is following him, it's the active presence of humility. It, it, is, it is the litmus test. I know we say love, but the world can't recognize love anymore. It's, they've got so many definitions. But the world is not humble the disciple of Christ is. It's one of the last remaining distinctives that separate the Christian from everyone else, humility. He goes on to say, do nothing. Do nothing, that's pretty all-encompassing. Out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. You can take these truths I'm sharing with you and you can apply them to your conversation this morning with your spouse, your children, with God, with your coworker. The church can look at the humility that's present within the body, that body, and the church can evaluate our effectiveness in the world. Do nothing, not one thing. Don't do one solitary thing. Don't do one iota of a thing, he says, out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. He didn't say ambition, selfish ambition. We live in the land of opportunities where the American dream can come true, where ambition is a, is a, is a great attribute. It's a great strength. But is your ambition self-fulfilling, is your ambition costly to others? In your ambition, in your success, in your acquiring of resources, did you have to step on somebody to get there? Do nothing out of selfish ambition. Said another way, be as ambitious as you possibly can. Set measurable goals, attainable goals, repeatable goals. Noble goals, God-worthy goals, attain your goals, but not in any kind of self, selfish way. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Do nothing that brings attention to yourself so as to defining who you are, who you want to be, who you want to present yourself to be. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. It's not, not something on not occasion, but nothing all the time. Do nothing out of selfish ambition and vain conceit, rather, in humility. In humility. Value others above yourself. You know, if Christ wasn't that way, following him would be so much easier. Sort of, but he was that way, so following him should be easy, the burden should be light, if he in fact is doing that through us. You and I have a propensity to selfish ambition. He has a propensity to ambition, but not selfish. It was John Ruskin who said, I believe the first test of a truly great man is his humility. I do not mean by humility doubt of his own power or hesitation in speaking his opinion, but really great men have a feeling that the greatest is not in them, but through them, that they could not do or be anything else than God made them. Andrew Murray said, The humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear he can bear. He made them, the humble man feels no jealousy or envy. He can praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. He can bear, barely hear others praise because he has forgotten and he has received the spirit of Jesus who pleased not himself and sought his own honor. Therefore, in putting the Lord Jesus Christ, he has put on a heart of compassion, kindness, meekness, long-suffering, and humility. Humility is something we should constantly pray for yet never thank God that we have humility. I would say the absence of humility, or can we say the presence of pride, is one of the most easily recognizable issues that come between two people in a relationship. An an over-concern for oneself and oneself needs being met in a disconcerting or a deficit that the needs of the others be met. Humility. Andrew Murray nailed it. It is teachability. It is openness to correction. It is uh, a willingness to say I was wrong. Humility. Humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and... He will lift you up. God looks to and fro over the earth for righteousness, but I'll tell you what gets his attention. Earnest humility. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. I tried this one time, and then I just saw that it worked, so it just became a way of life for me. Early on in my walk, when I, when I prayed for the, to the Lord, I would, I would tend to pray about my own life. I would tend to ask him to show me things and give me things and teach me things. Nothing wrong with that. Although, the, the tenor of the prayer over years now, I'm talking years, the tenor of the prayer really was, prayer is defined as Gary kneeling, getting on his face, walking, driving, whatever it is, praying to God so that God would be on the ready to provide Gary with whatever it was he thought he needed. And I wasn't always right. The, prayer, the answer to a prayer is always yes, or no, or not now. Sometimes, early on in my walk and my zealousness and my newness as a Christian, the answer was typically yes. He did teach me, he did show me, he did reveal. He did did help me to grow. But after a while, the answer wasn't yes. Sometimes it was no, and sometimes it was not yet. I found out how God can get back to saying yes again. I started to not pray for myself. I started to pray for the things that others needed. Others that needed help or provision or salvation or deliverance, had strongholds, people who were confused or lost. I then stopped by natural, stopped pointing out their faults and started using them as prayer requests. I found that as I prayed for others, God was answering my prayer and giving me the same thing I had in myself. This all started when I looked at the Lord's Prayer, not that I'm the example, but I never saw the word I in the Lord's Prayer, and that was a tip-off to me. Why am I praying about me? when the Lord's Prayer uses us and we and our, I got on that bandwagon with him and all of a sudden I took off. I began to see that I didn't need to necessarily figure in on my own interest, but the interest of others. Indirectly, he was providing for me when I made other people my focal point. That was a humbling experience, but yet I was somewhat teachable. Percentage-wise, when you have a conversation with another person, how much of your talk is about you and how much is about them? When you share, do you share more about yourself or the interest that they have? You can get legalistic about this, but your conversation, your words, reveal The attitude of the heart. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you speak, what are you speaking about? What questions are you asking? God will meet your emotional, physical, financial, and spiritual needs as you obey Him to take an interest in what He's most interested in those around you and the gospel. And this is the church. If the leadership of a church can do one of two things, it can be absolutely laced with needs, never-ending needs of people. Need for this, a need for that, a need for this, a need for that. Pray for this, pray for that. And it's all good. And we should look to meet one another's needs, carry one another's burdens. But if a church doesn't get outside themselves if a church doesn't make something beyond herself of interest, all that church will ever do is go on a merry-go-round, never go anywhere, only seeking to meet the never-ending needs of the people in it. When that couple, when that family, when that church, when that company reaches beyond itself and seeks to meet the needs of other people more than their own interest, their own interests become met. Their own needs get met. Why? Because God fortifies, strategizes with, resources those who are doing his work. This is why it's imperative that Community Bible Church, this little mountain church, I told you this, I'm using money only because it's a measurement, it's the only way I can think of how to articulate it. I came from a church that had a $7 million budget with 7,000 people, and this church gave $3 million with 500 people. It's imperative to shore our lives up. We must have a genuine compassion in other people, of all peoples, all tribes, all people groups, all nations. Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. You see how this recenters you? I had a Bible teacher tell me one time, he said, uh, yeah, my wife and I, before we go to bed, we usually take our supplements or medicine or whatever. He said, I had just got done preaching on on this passage here. And he went down and got his supplements and got his glass of water and walked up to the bedroom and set him down on the nightstand and took one at a time. His wife looked at him and said, you, you, you didn't bring mine upstairs? You, you, didn't, you didn't bring enough water for us to share? You, you want me to go downstairs and get my supplements, turn the lights on, come back up, and probably have to check to make sure the doors are locked because you probably didn't. We have to look out for the interest of others. These are spiritual principles that are non-negotiable, always true. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset. Some of your, some of your translations say attitude. Have the same attitude as Christ Jesus. You know, you can have a good attitude. That's what I like people to have a good attitude. Don't you? You can have a really good attitude but a good attitude isn't always a God attitude. Sometimes you can be all positive and all optimistic and upbeat and everything, but you can miss the needs of others by doing that. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who bearing in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or used to his own advantage. We live in a world where everyone's told they're equal. And the one who ruled over the world and died for it never considered himself equal with God and was God. Our our goal is equality. His goal was inequality. Making himself less. (laughs) Isn't that interesting? The, the wave of culture says equality, 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 and Jesus says, I'm just going to make myself less. You can have a good attitude, but not necessarily a God attitude. Recenter. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul grew into this. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain, Philippians 121. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I find this personally... In my life, I am called as a man, just like you are as a man or a woman. I'm called to do this one thing, to not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of my mind. That's what you're called to do. Here's the way it usually works, and it did for a long time with me. The worst the world got the less I was called to. The more nasty the world gets, the less it's required of me. As long as I'm better than the world, I don't have to be scriptural. And the worse the world gets, I'm not as bad. I'm not called to be not as bad. I'm not called to be slightly better than the world. I'm called to something totally different, as are you to become obedient to death, even death on the cross, to humble myself. Don't allow the paganism of this world, the materialism of this world, the hedonism of this world to water down what's called of you. The worse the world gets, the less we act like they do. And the more the true, the true dying to self that Christ calls us to will get the attention of the world. The world, the worse it gets, and it's getting worse, requires biblical discipleship to yank them out of the darkness, to get their attention, to make transformation and change. We can ill afford to be these Christians that say, well, I'm not as bad as the world, but I'm not, and I'm nowhere near what I'm called to be. No, we're called to die to self. We can't change Christianity because we live in a weird world. It is, it is a very interesting dynamic that's going on. We can't change the world by being worldly either. The standard, the recentered centered standard of, of how our attitude should be is right in front of us. It doesn't change in different decades. It doesn't look different. It always looks the same. And that is to have Christ live through us in an ever-dying world. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death. Luke 9, 23, pick up your cross daily deny yourself and follow Christ. The challenge that we have in the church going forward in the next 20, 25 years is this. Fewer people will actually preach the truth of what we're called to to say and do and be. The line will move. It happens in legalism. It always moves. And on the other side of the spectrum, the line always moves as well. You can't go to a baseball game, you can't go to a movie, you can't cut your hair, you can't wear makeup, you can't wear a skirt this up to here, here, no, and then then it's here, and then it's here, then you can go to a game, now you can't go to a game, now you can cut your hair, now you can wear makeup. That's all legalism. It's so messed up. It doesn't know who it is, where it is, or where it's going. Then carnal Christianity is, well, I'm not as bad as the world, I'm doing this pretty good, I seem to be doing, it has nothing to do with the scripture. Nothing. And then there's this, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, made himself nothing. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. If you have any tenderness and compassion, any fellowship with the Spirit, any encouragement, if you are his, and he is in you, taking residence in you, wanting to live through you, If that's the case, and you truly want him to live his life through you, then expect your life to increasingly look very, very different from the world. Much more different from the world than perhaps we're living now. Because it's us that's living, not him through us. There's a $30 trillion wealth transfer taking place in this country in the next 20 years. $30 trillion being transferred to the millennials and entrusted to them to build the kingdom of God. We need a biblical understanding of what it is we're called to do and say and be. We need to let Christ live his life through us. I too get off the map, off the screen, on the wrong road, thinking the wrong thing. Sometimes we just have to hit recenter. Bring it all back down to a cross. Just to a cross, the simplicity of the cross. Don't live a life that's not as bad as the world. Live a life that'll change the world. Humble thyself. Don't pray for revival in this land. Pray for repentance that precedes it. I watched in the 1990s tens of thousands of people pray for revival and hundreds pray for repentance. If my people, called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways repent then will i hear from heaven heal their land this is it right here starts right here if you do not have elements please raise your hand and make sure that you get some here thank you very good yourself up. Paul struggled deeply with this conflict between the flesh and the spirit. (laughs) What I want to do, I don't do, and what I don't want to do, that I do, he says. Let Christ live his life through you much more than you live your life for him. You'll be such a stark difference to the darkness the darkness will have to take note the absence of humility in a marriage causes strife not attended long enough causes resentment left on its own it becomes really difficult overcome such a divide men humble thyself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up the night our Lord was betrayed he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to him you were taken out of the darkness you were blessed beyond measure. And the only reason you're broken is you realize you don't re- really deserve it. And once you really realize you don't deserve it, you're truly broken, you now have something to give. Take bless, take bless break, and us Partake of the body of Jesus Christ. Power emanates from, resides in, and is defined by its immersion in the blood of Jesus Christ. No weapon formed against it prospers. Behold the Lamb of God taketh away the sin of the world. Lamb before the shears was silent, humble, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Your sins. Are forgiven by the blood of the lambs. Partake of the blood. All of that. Let's meditate on these things for a moment.